welcome to The Truth In This Heart. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today, I have the privilege of speaking to a public historian, filmmaker, curator at a history museum. Please welcome Joe Tropea. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rob. Thank you so much. Great to be here. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. It's always great to be here chatting with you um, and uh, learning more about your work. And um, I want to start off. There's a new thing that I've been doing. Like I'll do the kind of, you know, cut and paste um, kind of like copy of what that introduction looks like. But I really like to have the um, guests start off by really giving what they think their full, more robust version of introduction is. And really in, in, in doing that, Tell me how you got um, attached to and interested in um, like public history. So give me that description of like how you how you really see yourself, how you view yourself in in this community and in, in the filmmaking world, and um, what really drew you to su- the subjects that you work with. Then, um, yeah, all right. Well, I so I was born in Baltimore. I'm I'm from here. I've moved away a few times, um, but always came back. <laughs> Uh, I spent my 20s playing music uh, in bands and touring around the country and um, took a long college break. Uh, And then in my mid-30s, went back to school and thought that I wanted to study uh, filmmaking or the history of movies and kind of realized, yeah, that might not be so lucrative um, as far as finding a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was very interested in history and I was very drawn to public history. Uh, I went to UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and they have a very strong public history uh, program there. And I, I pretty quickly realized that, you know, you can be a historian and write books or articles or teach uh, or for some people become a park ranger. Um <laughs> But in public history, you learn to sort of present history to an audience. Uh, and that it's kind of sounds similar, but it's different. Um, and public history is is a field that is very collaborative in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, most of the stuff I find myself involved in throughout my life is collaborative in nature. You know, playing in a band is a very collaborative thing, making music. Uh, filmmaking is super collaborative. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was drawn to, to the public history program and, uh, and did that and um, was fortunate enough to find work in it um, pretty soon after graduating. Um, nothing lucrative. That's still still grasping for that. Um, but what I, uh, I guess the other thing I liked about it is um, having like a public history day job allows me to be um, a filmmaker still yeah. and, and, and do other things and pursue other interests. It's, uh, it's not always a nine to five job, but it's not like one of these jobs where you're constantly, you know, where you're working 80 hours a week and you just have no energy left to do anything else. So, um, yeah, all those things kind of drew me toward public history. Just my, my natural tendency to want to tell stories to people. Yeah, that's, that's great. And, you know, I, I feel like there is some overlap in there and what my desire in doing this podcast is and like uncovering things, rediscovering things, showing people like, Hey, this is what this was guys. And, um, just, you didn't know these things about Baltimore. Why do you know that? And you know, that's the thing that those things that really interest me. Um, and I think 
every every so often when I'll, I'll have like folks who are about maybe the history of Baltimore, like let's say Anita Kassoff, as we were talking about a little earlier before we got started, or even like Molly Ricks with, um, you know, Baltimore history or what have you, that, you know, Baltimore is a very old city and, you know, there's stuff that this, this constant like rebrand. I don't know who, who Baltimore's PR team is, but it's constantly rebranding. I was like, what are we? Because it's like, are we just violent? Are we blue collar? What are we? Are we arts? What are we here? And I think there are different things that shape how people maybe view Baltimore and from whatever standpoint, um, like my dad is in his 60s and he'll talk about the railroad and Bethlehem still. I don't have that experience. So was there a life experience that maybe, cre- that maybe shaped your creative sensibility? And, you know, so tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, so let's say, tell us a bit more, t- tell us a little bit about that, but also if you could maybe touch on um, your process, whether it be in filmmaking, whether it be um, in like documenting history, what does that look like from conception to creation? Um, so I, I guess if there's a, an experience that, that shaped me, um, it would probably have to be moving when I was younger from the city to the county, or as I called it, the country. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't thrilled with it at the time, and I was pretty young. Um, and I, I, you know, I can't say I hated every second of it, but I was pretty ready to move back to civilization um, when, when I turned 18 and was able to, uh, you know, decide where I lived on my own. Um, and I think part of it was, you know, uh, honestly, um, for my parents, I think it was kind of like a white flight kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand it then. You know, I went from having like a, um, a, a, a going to a school where, you know, it was a it was a mix of people um, to all of a sudden going to a school out in the county where I think maybe there were like two black people. There may have been like one or two Indian people and the rest, it was just all homogenous white people. And, um, you know, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that per se, but it, it struck me as like, why did we do this? Why why did we make this move? How is this supposed to make my life better? Um, being just bored off of my ass surrounded by cornfields, um, and, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think somehow when I, when I did get to move back to the city and feel connected to a community, um, I, I, I don't know how to put it in words any better than that, but I think that shaped my sense of viewing the world. And if I'm creative, it shaped my sense of creativity. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm not sure. I, I remember the second part of your oh, yeah. question, or if yeah. I answered it. No, no, no. Uh, yes. Uh, so the the second part of it, could you could you walk us through? And again, a very like overarching sort of way because it's you you're you're not just a filmmaker because there's a lot that goes into that, right? It's not just oh yeah, I make films. Hard stop. Um, so tell us about like your your general perspective when you're creating something tell me about the conception to creation are you doing storyboards are you coming like with a with a note grabbing the iphone let me put down a couple of things a guy does this like tell me about that process for you 
Okay. So yeah, usually because, you know, because I'm a historian and I make documentaries, I spend a lot of time doing research and generally that's on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and, and, and I may, may have the tendency to get stuck in research mode for too long and not want to have to start writing or, or like making the thing that I, that I'm doing the research for. Um, but uh, I'll do that first, and um, and then I start thinking about like who who I want to work with, you know, which team members can I, and and you know, and I have to be realistic because I'm low budget independent filmmaker, right? So I generally don't have money to pay people, um, so I I'll, I'll try to you know barter when I can. Like I'll work on your film if you work on mine. Um, but, but I, uh, but I, I, I think, um, I tend towards collaboration. So, so once I feel like I know the story, I, I, I start to bring in other people and then, you know, I give up a little bit of control and say, well, maybe, you know, maybe I haven't thought of the best way to tell this story. What do you think? And then we, you know, and then we sort of work it out. Um, generally, you know, if it's my project, I, I, try to stay in control of it but really i try to let let it go where where it's going to go um if i'm working on someone else's film i try to you know uh support them um as best i can to help them tell you know tell the story they want to tell the best way collaboration is a is a big thing right and um i like like hearing that like I've been asking this question because we're so caught on what is this dollar amount? And we're very, I think, DIY here. Like, obviously, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm podcasting. So, you know, that's a, another thing. It's like, oh, it's, it's so much money and it. it is so much money. And I'm just I'm wearing a suit made out of dollars there, Joe. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, hearing, you know, working with people and collaborating, bartering, those are things that I think have been taken out of like art and creation and kind of can prevent things from actually happening, coming to fruition and realization. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I should mention too, like working as a, as a, as a curator doing exhibitions, um, that's a very collaborative process too. Um, having one person in control of how you're going to tell the history of something is not always a good idea, especially in a museum setting. You, right. you definitely want as many qualified and competent eyes on on a thing. Um, and if you can include the people that it's about as much as possible, like you're, you're going to tell a, a, a better a better history or a better story that represents, um, you know, as close to the actual thing, the actual events that happened as possible. Yeah. So... Yeah, I remember uh, working at a place uh, years ago, and it was a very it was a nonprofit, and you know, very uh, there's a lot of weird white people there, and they were wondering why um, different folks from different countries that they were operating in really didn't receive them well. It's like because you're sending people from Indiana to different like parts of Africa, they don't <laughs> they need someone. It's like how do I connect with you? Yeah, so I'm going to tell you about the diaspora. It's like you don't <laughs> like what are you saying? Like, can right, you bring right. in a brother, please? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so one of the questions I have here: um, who are who are those those 
those those lead people, those those masters in terms of your creative interests? And have you met them and have you learned anything thing from them? Uh, you, you've you're a listener to the podcast and you've heard me make a tit out of myself talking to people who are in radio and people was like, oh, yeah, I was really happy about that interview, wasn't he? So and those would be masters for me because I feel like I'm just soaking up information from them and how to maybe improve what I do. So who are those like masters for you and your, your creative pursuits and have you met them and what have you learned from them? Um, that's, that's a great question. That's going to be very hard for me to answer. Um, I, uh, as a, um, as a filmmaker, I, uh, I, I should have mentioned that I also worked for a video store for a decade of my life. Um, and that really was my film school. Um, just how I, I worked at Video American, um, which was just a tremendous uh, uh, four chain location that had, you know, every type of movie you can imagine. Um, so, I mean, I have my my people that I uh, look up to as filmmakers that I, I, you know, probably most of them couldn't meet because they're dead, uh, you know, like Luis Bunuel yeah. or um, or, you know, Hitchcock or. Uh, or, you know, Melvin Van Peebles, although I did have a really good phone conversation with him one time. That's great. Um, but uh, I, I have met some people that I have considered uh, role models, and it's it's been kind of meh, um, honest. <laughs> I, uh, I, I got to meet a, a huge fan of most of David Simon's work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, The Wire, um, Show Me a Hero. I, I, I won't list his... Uh, his filmography, but um, <laughs> I, I got to be his press attache one time for uh, a Maryland film festival event. And, you know, I had actually um, done an internship connected to him at some point prior to that. He had no idea. And he like I was just wallpaper to him. Like he did not notice me, uh, <laughs> you know, and it was like, man, I, I, I don't know what I thought this was going to be like. <laughs> But, oh boy, like, you know, don't meet your idols. Um, and, and one time I got to interview Ken Burns when I worked for City Paper. I, um, I, I, I video interviewed him. Yeah. Um, and I, of course, threw in the Ken Burns effect joke from, uh, from iMovie. Um, and he didn't laugh and I didn't laugh. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I, I I got in pretty deep with him, and like he told me about funding and it and how he funded his movies all through you know corporations like GM, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was really kind of depressing. I mean, he was a nice guy, and so was David Simon, N- nice guy. But once I started hearing like the reality of what it's like to be that to be Ken Burns, I was like, yeah, yeah I don't. I, I don't want to be that kind of filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, as a historian, I've been fortunate enough. Um, I met like my historian idol, Howard Zinn. I got to um, interview him for my first documentary. And he was just the nicest man. So gracious and like, you know, so just willing to like entertain my questions and let me stay for a really long time. <laughs> um so, you know, that that was amazing. And I also got to um, interview Noam Chomsky. And um, that was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> very, very nice, gracious man also. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, be careful uh, meeting your idols because sometimes it's not always so great. <laughs> 
uh, noted. Um, I don't want to meet any of my mid idols. I mean, most it's kind of one of those things. A lot of the comedians, like I, I really revel at comedians and chefs. Those are the people that I look for. And because if you make me laugh, you you have an interesting standpoint or something. It's like, oh, okay. And the, the kind of what you were touching on. It's like most of my favorite comedians are dead. So it's like, huh. Okay, well, won't be meeting Richard Pryor. I guess that's done. And uh, Patrice O'Neill is out. All right, fair enough. Uh, Yeah. um, And and also, I'll throw this in there. Um, You you may you may find this interesting. Um, My girlfriend has her old video American card on uh, the refrigerator at her house. Oh my god! Is is it the purple one? um, I think it's green. Okay, green might have been Cold Spring Lane store. Yeah. Purple was was uh, Charles Village, I think. Um, so that's great, man. That's I don't even have mine anymore, which is a bummer. Um, but that's cool. <laughs> yeah, and I took a look at. It, I was like, why is this card following me? I felt like I was in the the movie, the number twenty three. I was like, ah, because it was just after I did the interview with Kevin. I was like, ah, no. Right. Um, this goes back into one of the things you were touching on earlier about collaboration. Um, so productions, uh, in, in, in most of the work that you were describing, you're showing, showing that through line of collaboration. Um, differences are inevitable. Tell me about um, how you productively uh, disagree. Yeah, that's, a, that's another tough one, man. Um, I, I really, uh, I think because I've worked on my own films and I've worked on my friends' films, um, I have a rule that, you know, I maybe should state it up front, but I, I keep it in my head, which is that, you know, if it's my project, um, if I'm the director and there's no co-directorship, mm-hmm. um, I kind of want to be the boss. As you but, should. But, you, you know, but not to the extent that I'm going to forge ahead and do something stupid that, like, someone I trust told me, you know, like, no, nah, I wouldn't, I don't think that's the right way to do that. Um, so I... I I think um, if it's my thing, I try to be in charge, but only, you know, like within reason. I want to I want to hear other perspectives and and listen to other people's feedback Um, when it's uh, when it's another person's film I'm working on, um, you know, unless they're about to do something really stupid uh, or embarrassing. You know, I just try to, like, support as best I can. and and then like I've I've learned um, working as a curator, uh, where I often find myself on a team. Um, in fact, the only time I've ever uh, had storyboards was making a video for a fashion exhibition that we did a few years ago, and it's because we worked with a graphic designer who designed the show for us, who had experience as a sto- you know doing storyboards. Mm-hmm. And and my role was to make a video, make the video for the exhibition. So, um, so that was great because I didn't have to do it. I can't draw, um, but it really helped having having the visualization. And I, yeah. you know, I couldn't do it necessarily shot for shot, but um, but it was really uh, it was really a lot of fun working with a group like this where I, where the burden wasn't all on my shoulders and I just, I knew what my role was and it, and it just, it felt really good. And I'm really proud of how that thing turned out. Um, But yeah, I I think that's my general rule is I, uh, you know, I want to either be the boss or support or, or I want to be a team member. Um, And, and really I want to be a, I want to be a team player kind of more, 
more often than not, even on my own stuff. I, I agree with that. And um, it's to to quote the um, the great poet, um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know, you got to know your role. And uh, <laughs> but, but literally that that's the thing. And, you know, in, in working on um, some of these things, like I I try I feel like this is my project. Right. And me doing the truth in his art and anything that I feel like I'm putting forth out there, I'm going to do my best to one, if I bring someone on, try to collaborate, what's going to show you in the best light is to guess and give you as much runaway as possible. And, and, you know, it's in many regards, this podcast is a curated list of people I think that are doing good work, but also it's a commercial for, for them and what their background is and what their story is. So, if it's an instance where I'm like, all right, you sounded really weird there. You might want to, we might want to do a redo, you know, that's, that's how that operates for me, but really I'm steering the ship and, you know, but it's a collaborative effort in that way. Right. Right. I'm also happy to hear if I say something stupid, you'll give me the opportunity to uh, take it back. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, let's just, let's just remove that job. We can just, you know, reset. <laughs> Tell me about um, Flickering Treasures, Rediscovering Baltimore's Forgotten Movie Theaters. And could you, in that, describe the um, the, the film community here locally? Okay. Um, so uh, Flickering Treasures is a show that we currently have up at the Maryland Center for History and Culture. And um, it is uh, the show is based on a book by um, Baltimore Sun photographer Amy Davis, um, so it's her concept, uh, and she has actually done this show at other museums. Um, she she did a version of it at the National Building Museum in D.C., and I, I got to go see that. I, I think I was there the last day it was up. Um, but basically, what what the show does is it it looks at the uh, at, at the history of the movies in Baltimore um, by looking at the theaters. Mm-hmm. So um, so like for instance, the very first motion picture films ever shown in our area uh, was at this place called Electric Park. And um, it was a big like amusement park type place. Um, And they showed films like under a big giant tent. Um, And this was like, you know, these were like Edison projectors and like, you know, very short films that, that like maybe five, seven minutes and they had a program of them. Uh, But then, then, um, then it developed to where, you know, um, I mean, for many years, movies were shown outdoors and, 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 and by churches, like places that had large enough spaces to get people um, and to be able to, to project films. Uh, but pretty quickly, it, it, it changed into like um, uh, small indoor theaters uh, or like um, Nickelodeons, as they call them. Um, and then uh, and then it progressed to like these big movie palaces huh. and uh, and where I work uh, right off of Howard Street um, was like the Mecca Center for like uh, so many great theaters were in that in that particular area. But but, you know, Baltimore had Baltimore still has some great theaters, but nothing like what it what it grew to. Um, so basically that show tries to look at um at the history of how we watch movies and how it progressed in, in this area. Um, and we do that with, uh, with photographs, um, historic photographs mm-hmm. and modern photographs that Amy took. Um, and we have some ephemera. We have old programs from, uh, from theaters and, um, and we even have a, uh, 
we have a shirt um, that uh, the ushers wore at the Five West, which is now the Parkway. So, um, you know, so that one's still operating. And um, and and the Maryland Film Festival did a great job of restoring yes. um, uh, uh, that building and not not ruining it, um, you know, keeping its like his, historic integrity. Um, so, yeah. And, and so all these theaters uh, I've mentioned are, are a big part of the show. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it'll be up for another year. So I encourage if you haven't seen it yet, um, there is a video that plays in the exhibition that is excerpts from a film I made called Sickies Making Films about the history of movie censorship. Um, I had a lot of extra footage from when I interviewed people like John Waters um, about, you know, like going to which theaters they went to, um, what the movie watching experience was like. And a lot of the material just didn't fit into this documentary about censorship, but I got the double dip and use it in this <laughs> exhibition. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty great. So, and then the other, the other part of your question is what's the film community like here in Baltimore? Um, yeah. I think the answer is it's weird, uh, <laughs> but it's, but it's growing and it's growing in, um, it's growing in ways that it never has. Um, I, uh, when I say I worked at, at Video American for 10 years, I got to meet a lot of local filmmakers that way because, like, we're basically the archive of any old movie you'd want to see, um, maybe because of something you're working on. Um, you know, we had it. So um, so I, I got to meet a lot of people that way. Um, previous to that, when I was playing in bands, I lived in this group house called the Mansion Theater, which wasn't a theater, but it was once a funeral home. And it was like this group house, seven of us lived there. Um, uh, most of us were musicians. Some people were, were filmmakers and I would get pulled into people's films that they were making. Like, I need you to play a redneck zombie in my, <laughs> in my movie. And I'd be like, oh, I can do that. And I had really long hair. Sure, I'll, uh, I'll be your zombie. Um, but I, uh, I lived in that house with um, a good friend uh, and collaborator, Skiz Sizik, um, and, um, and got to help him make films. And, and he once a month would show movies. We'd have like, you know, 50, 70 people in our living room, um, you know, watching uh, obscure, weird um, films that um, local people had made or, you know, you know, underground filmmakers. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I got to know, you know, a lot of filmmakers that way. Um, and it was kind of a pretty small community for many years. And then then, you know, I don't think it started with David Simon, but it, it seems to have like all of a sudden TV productions mm -hmm. descended on Baltimore. It seemed like sometime in the 90s. And, you know, some of my friends were taking professional jobs um, as set decorators, you know, like joining the union and I'm getting like good paying jobs making movies. And, you know, a bunch of things were filmed here, um, you know, not just The Wire, but like... Uh, Veep, um, I don't know, I, too many to name. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but the cool thing about that was if you were trying to make a film and, uh, and you needed a crew, if the timing was right, like mm -hmm. if um, whatever HBO show 
was finished production, all of a sudden there were these professional people in town looking for something to do. And if you were cool and they were cool, they'd come work on your thing and you wouldn't really have to pay them like what they would expect to be paid. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of neat. But then, you know, then television kind of dried up on us a little bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, in, in fact, where I work, uh, we have the old Greyhound Terminal building. Yeah. And, and we recently sold it. But for many years, we rented it out to uh, to uh, film production uh, companies. So like Netflix was in there doing House of Cards. Yeah. Um, Veep was in there, the HBO show. Uh, the uh, uh, Blanken on the uh, on the 12 o'clock boy movie, not the documentary. Trump, Trump City but, Kings. Yeah. Yeah. That was a production there. Um, so, you know. I, I and I think at one point, like while Veep was in production, like Julia Louis Dreyfus just happened to be in our lobby going <laughs> through, and uh, it's like it's just so weird, you know. You have access to all these people in town, all of a sudden. Um, but yeah, like I said, that kind of dried up a little bit. But you know, now um, it seems to be opening up even more. Like, and I, I think part of that is like institutions getting involved, like mm-hmm. the. Uh, the Saul Zantz fund um, through Hopkins um, and, and maybe Micah um, are, are, are providing opportunities um, if not through funding, at least through like an incubator program where you can get together with, uh, with, with people working on stuff and, and learn together and bounce ideas off of each other. And, you know, we never really had that before unless you, or, you know, happened to move into a group house like I did, where it was like an unofficial incubator. Yeah. Um, so, and and there are some great, organ- I mean, MICA is a great uh, institution for, um, for filmmakers and artists of all types, but they're very supportive. Um, and I've had over the years, a lot of favors done when I needed like to look at an old 16 millimeter film. Um, and they're like the only place that has a steam deck that you can, that you can access. Um, and, and the film festival for, you know, for 20 years now has been really supportive of the local scene. Um, so yeah, but, but it's, it's weird and it's, um, it's evolved a lot and it's, uh, kind of exciting to see where it's going to go. Yeah. And, um, you know, if I can ever make anything again coming out of this pandemic, uh, I look forward to uh, to being a part of it. I always said, like, I didn't take one of those production jobs back when I maybe could have, because if I were making if I were doing that kind of work as a day job, I'd never make one of my own projects again. I would just I wouldn't want to do it. You know, I'd want to come home and do like anything other than that, probably. Um, and now it is sort of starting to seep into my day job a little bit where I, where I make exhibition videos, um, or have to edit things for, uh, like, like, uh, virtual programs through zoom, um, that we put on our, our channels. Um, but I'm hanging in there and, um, yeah, hopefully still a part of the, of the scene. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for walking us through that. Um, so I think I think this next question and, and, and final real question will be a uh, a good follow up to what we were just talking about there. There are so many stories here to be to rediscover and un, or uncover. Um, only I, I, like um, 
often I only see the dark underbelly of Baltimore, which can be very entertaining, very informing. However, Baltimore can be very weird, funny, and inspiring, all of those things, run the gamut of emotions and feelings and all of that stuff. In terms of subject matter related to Baltimore, what documentary or, or fictional film would you like to see? Like, could you de like describe like really what you want to see more of? Because I think it's um pretty wide net and there's a tension to, um, in Baltimore and they, you know, there was a production that wrapped and a few other productions that are happening. We own this city um, just wrapped a few months back and that's going to be dropping, you know, soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have, I have one of my own projects I was supposed to make before the pandemic and the pandemic kind of, you know, put it on ice. Um, but it is, uh, and, and I have to say, I am drawn to the dark underbelly of <laughs> almost everything, but this was kind of a lighter story. Uh, the, the, and I'm still, I'm going to make it. I, I have a partner where we're, we'd say we're going to do this and we, we are, uh, so I'm going to talk about it and then, um, and then feel more pressure to do it because maybe someone else will hear it and try to steal the story. But um, there's, I accidentally came upon this story of this guy, Lewis Mackenzie Turner, who, um, who worked uh, as a newspaper guy. He, he, he actually print, he worked on the machines that printed the paper. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, his side hustle was he had his, uh, his own little printing house. And it, I think it was called Salt House Press. Uh, it was literally like, um, in a salt house for an ice cream company. Like that's where he kept his office. Um, but I, I start, and, and what he would do uh, is he would make these fake book covers. So one example, and it's where I get the title for the film is the truth is fireproof. And this, he, 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 he faked a letter from Hitler to FDR. Um, and basically the, 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 point of his letter was how dare you criticize you know germany uh look how your country treats its black people and you know and it total fictitious like and and then the crazy thing is that he printed it on asbestos paper and titled it you know the truth is fireproof wow um so you know a, a forgery yeah and it turns out he he made all these other weird front pages of books that he never wrote. He would just come up with a clever title and weird artwork. Yeah. And he would, um, I, you know, he had friends at the Maryland Historical Society, which is the name of the place where I work now. That's our old name. Mm -hmm. um, he would give, he would know like the director and he, he knew people at the Peabody Library also. So he would give them his stuff and they would put it in their collection. And I found <laughs> that we had a collection of Lewis Mackenzie Turner. And, you know, it's just all this crazy, weird artwork, like graphic uh, and, and, and weird little poems that he wrote and printed himself. But then it turns out he previously had worked at the Library of Congress in the 1890s and was involved in one of the largest archive um, robberies. He, he basically got the keys to his boss's office and stole all these really important, along with a partner, stole the, these like founding father's documents out of his boss's office. And this is how lax archives were right back right. in in the 1890s. And he he would sell them and he would make up stories as to how he got them. <laughs> and uh, and they got caught. Yeah. 
And because him and his partner turned on each other, neither of them ever really they, they couldn't prove like it, it's it's a very murky trail on all this. But he couldn't prove who who really was the main thief. Right. So they got away with it. And it's like the <laughs> ultimate story of white privilege. Yeah, yeah. Like you stole like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson <laughs> letters and journals, sold them, profited from them, and never had to pay the price. Wow. So so yeah, this this car- this guy is just fascinating. And um and we're supposed to make a short documentary about it. And I, I hope uh I hope we do. I'm looking forward to seeing it. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So with that being said, um, I think it's time for some um, some rapid fire questions. All right. Huh? Let's do it. And you, and you know how this works. You know how this works. <laughs> yeah. Favorite documentary? Oh, man. Wow. I, it's like it's such a, this is such a Sophie's Choice thing for me. Like, which child would I, would I, uh, would I, would I give up? Um <laughs> I'll off the top of my head, I'll say Harlan County, USA, okay. uh, which is about uh, this coal mine sh- strike in West Virginia. Um, I'm so blanking right now. Uh, Burden of Dreams, which is about Werner Herzog making it's like the making him making his movie Fitz Corraldo, mm-hmm. where he has to drag a steamship up a mountain and down the other side to get it from one body of water to another. Oh, wow. And like people in his crew who are like it, oh, this takes place in, in South America. Mm-hmm. The people in his crew got killed dragging this ship. Wow. And like, it, it, it's just this crazy story of him questioning why he made this film and, you know, and it's, it's Werner Herzog. So it, it's, it's his wit throughout the whole thing. Um, Okay. Yeah. So okay, I, I could keep going. I'm just gonna stop there. <laughs> um, since since uh, you you touched on it earlier with the um, exhibition that's happening right now, that's that's happening for the next year or so. Tell me um, your favorite Baltimore theater of all time. It could be something that doesn't exist anymore, something that's currently around. Where 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 is the place you'd like to see movies? Where's your favorite movie movie house? Well, um, you know, I should say the Parkway, and it kind of is. Um, and if that's kind of a backhanded compliment, I'll, I'll say this. Um, my What used to be my favorite place to sit for a movie was the front row of Theater One at the Charles Theater before they got the new seats. Oh. The new seats ruined it. <laughs> I mean, they're way more comfortable. The, the old chairs were just awful. I mean, you wouldn't fall asleep <laughs> watching a movie, even a bad movie. You couldn't fall asleep because they were so uncomfortable. But the way the front row, it was just far enough away from the screen that you weren't craning your neck. But, you know, no one could sit in front of you. You had all the leg room in the world. And it just felt like you were in the the best, like, you know, better than the living room because it's a theater. But like just the most comfortable. No one's going to walk in front of you. No one's going to crowd you out. Um yeah, that that was it for me. It was the Charles, and and I still love the Charles. I I I, lo- I like their new seats. They're very comfortable. Um, and uh, but yeah, it was it was theater theater one, uh, row one at the Charles before they got new seats. Dig it. Lastly, um, and this this might be political, crunchy, or or, or creamy peanut butter. 
Oh man, it depends on what you're using it for. Um, um I, 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 when I when I wrote this question, I was thinking a peanut butter sandwich, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah, I, I would go crunchy on a on a on a peanut butter and jelly mm. sandwich. But I, I used to have this this really terrible treat that I enjoyed. Spin it. Which was to take two frosted pop tarts, <laughs> either Nutella or peanut butter between them, and make a you know a disgustingly delicious dessert sandwich. And and you, you really crunchy didn't work for that, so no. it have to be creamy. But yeah, yeah crunchy. Yeah, I'm a I'm a crunchy guy, but it it, it it's uh it depends on the jelly. If right. it's like a strawberry jelly, like a strawberry preserves, always crunchy. But yeah. if it's like something of of lesser repute, nah, I can just creamy, whatever. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty much all I had, and I want to thank you for being on this podcast. And two, I want to invite you to tell the fine folks where to check you out, check out your work. Um. Yeah. Wow. I uh, I have a a website for my last feature uh, called Sickies Making Films. It's www.sickiesmakingfilms.com. Um, I'm on Instagram as uh, the man with the gray flannel pit bull. Um, and I have most of my projects are on Facebook. So, um, but yeah, I need a website as is what I'm learning here, <laughs> <laughs> which my wife loves to remind me. So one of these days we're going to, we're going to get on it and do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Um, so yeah, thank you. Um, so for, uh, Joe Tropia, I am Rob Lee saying that there is film community, uh, culture, history in and around Baltimore. Uh, you just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.